Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie. Everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. All right, hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Today, 20 years later, we are going to discuss the 1999 Best Picture winner, American Beauty. Uh, we also will do a brief foray into uh, the documentary that won um, Best Documentary this past year at the Oscars, Free Solo. And then we're going to top it all off with our top five films we would recast. What the hell do you think you're doing? We're having everyone write out a job description. That way management can assess who's valuable and who's expendable. My parents are trying to take an active interest in me. Why can't they just have their own lives? I'm so proud of you. You didn't screw up once. Oh my God, it's a psycho next door. Jane, what if he worships you? I didn't mean to scare you. I'm not obsessing. I'm just curious. Why does he dress like a Bible salesman? Today I quit my job, and then I blackmailed my boss for almost $60,000 past these barriers. Your dad's actually kind of cute. I think he and your mother have not slept together in a long time. Shut up! You think you're the only one who's frustrated? I'm not? Well then, come on, baby, I'm ready. Welcome to America's weirdest home videos. This is for your own good boy. There are rules in life. Yes, sir. Don't give up on me, Dad. Smile. You're at Mr. Smiley's. You are so busted. I love shooting this gun. Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world. I feel like I can't take it. All right, so guys, this week, I'm pretty excited actually about this podcast because we're going to delve into a movie that was not only a critical success, but it hit with audiences as well 20 years ago and also won Best Picture, and that is um, Sam Mendes' American Beauty. And the reason I wanted to do this podcast, and I think the reason we all wanted to do this podcast was because... When this movie came out, we were, you know, it was the end of high school. We were kind of maturing in our um, our film education, so to say. Um, and this or was just getting big... started, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this was a big deal at that point. And this was a big deal to not only to us, but to critics and sort of what... Um, this ha- the, the impact this had in, on our culture. And I think we all sort of said, like, let's do this movie because it was a movie that was very much of its time. And we had wondered, will this, will this film stand up 20 years later after everything that's happened since 1999? Because, of course, American Beauty is sort of, it's about... Um, consumerism and it's about uh, you know rich suburban people dealing with rich suburban problems and at the time it seemed to break open 
you know, the facade of all these people who are trying to, to live um, the quintessential American life. And, it, and at that time, that was important. But I mean, this is pre 9-11. And the globalization of everything became so huge after that, that this movie being about just such a specific American suburban problem, um, at least in my mind, I was like, I don't think this is going to hold up 20 years later. And I think it's going to actually seem petty and um, it's going to seem like we had no problems back in 1999. I didn't quite feel that in the end, but I'm curious for you guys. I mean, I guess the question's simple. 20 years later, in a, in a year that came out with so many good movies, 1999, does American Beauty still hold up? Well, I mean, I've always felt very much the same as you described, Jeremy. It's American Beauty is always sort of that <clears throat> go-to example when you're talking about movies that don't stand the test of time. Um, and I think in the end, you know, without hearing, hearing the details from you, I felt similarly. I, I think this movie, I don't even know if holding up is the right term, but I don't think this movie has aged poorly. Um my and the main reason, and I actually have a few reasons that I think it is is still a, a good movie and worth watching. Is but the main reason is that I think the themes that you mentioned, you know, consumerism, um, hating your job, kind of being a slave to this like American ideal, all of those things are actually handled with a good amount of subtlety in this movie. There are some moments where they come right out and say things. The it's just a couch blow up that Kevin Spacey has comes first to mind. Uh Um, And those are less effective. But for the most part, I do think this movie had some good nuance and good subtlety that allowed those themes to exist, but weren't overbearing and weren't just so specific to 1999 that it is irrelevant now. Yeah, it's interesting to look at, um, we talked about Fight Club on the Fincher uh, retrospective, um, you know, back last summer, and that came out the same year and dealt with kind of similar issues, you know, the, the you know, being a job slave, and I think these, um, I think these type of films and these subject matters were a lot more common than we remember. Um, I was trying to think of more. I think you could argue that American Psycho is a is a twist uh-huh. on this as well. Office Space, um, and I think you know, depending on when you last revisited American Beauty, it could have been a time when you were out of work, uh, and a job, any job, sounded like a great thing. Um, that was that was probably not uncommon for a lot of people, um, and uh, but. I don't think that inherently, just because the subject matter isn't necessarily um, relevant, uh, is uh, 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 it means that the film is bad. I mean, in, in many ways, this may be more relevant to us now because we're sort of we're not the you know young bachelors that we were when we first saw this. We're now you know in relationships and have more domesticated lifestyles. Um, we all own homes, for example, so we know what that's like. We know what you know property value. We we know we're, we know the importance of property value and uh, things like that. Um, and so, watching it from that perspective was interesting. I think the the flaws that I found watching it in this this time around were ones that I I think um, are sort of 
common ones with you know first time directors and ones that were inherent in the filmmaking the first time around and I don't know that I am going to be the one that says that I remember this when I saw it for the first time. I mean, we were only like 14, I think, when this came out. But I, I, I don't remember loving American Beauty, ever really loving it. Um, and so I was surprised, actually, that I was that I got into the film and the subject matter of the film. But I do think the flaws that are there are inherent and are, are pretty glaring once you actually figure out what they are. Yeah, well, before we go to those flaws, I, I want to... Um, stay with the subject matter or the um, the themes of this movie a little bit more because I remember like even freshman year of college um, I remember writing a paper on American Beauty in philosophy class that sort of compared it to the allegory of the cave um, this would have been what this would have been 2003 three, 2003 so not too long after not, not too long out. after and then also like putting fight club in there like the idea of this con like, this concept of um domestication i think really really like hit me hard back then mm. like especially my my college years and i was and what was interesting about american beauty in particular was not only did it it do so well critically. I just remember in college when it, like we would put this on in the dorm room, kids that are 18, 19, 20 years old would stop and sit down and watch this movie. There was something engaging about it, and I felt it this time around too. Um, something about it that you're you kind of it keeps your attention glued to it. I think that there is a um, we all love those stories where the protagonist is rebelling against the system, right? And um, I think ultimately that's what the story is about is this Kevin Spacey character kind of waking up one morning and snapping and, um, you know, deciding he's not going to live the way other people live anymore and he's going to live his best life, to steal a phrase from today. Um, And I think that's very interesting. And we see, again, like we see that, we also saw that almost exact same thing in Fight Club where the guy essentially, um, you know, blackmails his boss into giving him severance and money to live so that he It's almost the exact same scene. Yeah, it's almost the exact same scene. And it's this sort of, you know, this it's this rebellion against the system. It's, you know, a a middle finger to the man. Um, And I, I think that... I mean, there is something, especially I think, especially now. I, I think it's interesting that uh, you that it was so popular amongst your peers, Jeremy, at that time. But it's it's also sort of appealing now, you know. Like I, I have, I think we, I think that fear of domestication. Well, where do you, you, where does it go wrong now? Because like we're kind of talking around, like we're we're saying where we kind of can relate to it. But there are points, in my opinion, where this goes wrong in these bigger thematic ideas. I mean, it just like it, it, it leads to some. I think, I mean, on the very surface, like, I think there's problems with the movies. I don't think that's what you're asking. I think what you're asking is... Thematically. Where, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think you... It's, it, you, you, 
it, it makes it hard for you now, I think, to root for Lester Burnham. I think like he it's it's taking very, Kevin Spacey out of the equation. Exactly. It's a very yeah. it's a very selfish thing he does. You realize the the pain it's causing his daughter. Um, right. I mean, she's not a very sympathetic character, and I think it's one of the flaws of the film. But like Annette Benning's character is, you know, still working and, and supporting the family, and he kind of does this brash act that he doesn't discuss with his wife and um not to mention the infatuation with a, an underage girl who's his daughter's friend. right and again I mean, you have to take kevin spacey out of the equation yeah. there <laughs> um, but i i think like what lee was talking about the couch scene i think that kind of describes it for me pretty well because there's nothing wrong with the idea of not giving physical objects and whatever um you know, as much worth as they did in those days. But what was wrong with it, what annoyed me, was that they spent $4,000 on a couch to begin with. Yeah. Like, there's so many, like... Well, so, I think Chapin made, you made a really excellent point when you're talking about kind of where we are in our lives at this point. Like, last week, I bought an an $80, like, um, tabletop cover for our dining room table. And it, uh, now, now our dining room table. Where to start with that? Well, no. So, well, basically, it's like a old. Our table is like old, um, like refurbished wood, and there's a lot of like cracks and stuff in it. So, you know, if we're eating on it, little by little, more and more food's going to get in those cracks. It just and fills in the cracks. No, so, it just fills it in. So yeah. the whole purpose of it was Sand to protect it, it. Now the table doesn't look as good anymore, but now I'm preventing it from from wear and tear, which like sort of allow. Like I sort of relate to that $4,000 couch. Now, that's an absurd amount for a couch, but that's beside the point. Like, she doesn't want to spill beer on it because they spent money on it and it doesn't want to get ruined. So, like, to that aspect, I I totally, like, relate to certain pieces, but my issue with that scene is that they come right out and say it. Whereas I think there's a lot of parts of this movie that kind of underscore those themes in a really good way. And I think I remember this movie as one that comes right out and yells, it's just a couch. And those are the ones that sort of stuck with me over the years. And I and I put the movie in that box. And for me, it, it wasn't that. And I think that's why, you know, if I have to say yes or no, does this movie hold up? I would say yes, it does, because I think they handle the material better than I gave it credit for. I mean, I, I guess what I'm just getting at is that the microcosm of that family doesn't seem as big a deal anymore in the world we live in. And well, that's I totally think, true. I yes. think that beca- a lot of that has to do with globalization and then the fact that we can, you know, with the internet and everything else, we see the problems of the world so easily. Well, yeah, not just from that, day to but, day, but also just like everybody else's problems. I mean, even your and peers, everybody else exactly living out loud and every every yeah. like everybody's health problems are you know part of a GoFundMe account, you know, uh, yeah. account or something. You know what I mean? Like every yeah. everything is out there. And so you see everybody's pain in a very clear way, and where, I mean, like, you know, I mean, there's the, there's an argument to be made that life is a lot better now than it was 20, 30 years ago. I mean, you know, a billion people have been raised out of poverty, but you know, it doesn't appear that way because everybody's problems are so, you know, obvious and on on display. But uh, okay, so should we feel? Should we still feel bad for that family? Should we feel for this rebellion, or is it just? The fact that his rebellion takes this sort of crazy pedophile lust and like um, wanting to just 
totally turn over consumerism and 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 fighting the the man was, which is his job what's interesting is he also but he he's in that same scene that he uh c- complains about it just being a couch he tells her he went and bought like a you know classic right. fire yeah. or something so exactly I mean, it's not like he's totally given it up well right. so this i think will get us into the movie a little bit because uh yeah like i i don't think it's to- it's not really american beauty's fault that times have changed right so right. but that's right. still you know that still is relevant in terms of the question of the, does this movie hold up but the separate piece of that is you know is it a good enough movie to keep watching because things might feel lit, a little bit outdated so I'm, I'm mostly curious to hear some of the flaws that Chapin is going to point out not that I think this is a flawless movie but I actually think that it was a really good movie and a really impressive effort from a rookie director at the time well I, yeah, if we're going to get into it, I mean, I, I think that my biggest takeaway was that, you know, we talk about um, we talk about movies, you know, showing instead of telling me that's a very important um, piece of advice that directors need to take is, you know, demonstrating things with visuals instead of just flat out and saying this. And to me, um, it feels like a story that is always telling you something instead of showing you something. I mean, I think well, the, the tagline is look closer. Is that is that right? Yeah. And yeah. And. You don't need to look closer. There, it's everything is very loud and very obvious. And this film is not very subtle, and it, there's not a lot of depth to it. I mean, I think that it deals with some very um, deep and, and interesting themes, but I don't think that the film itself requires you to look very closely. I think it, everything is very obvious, and um, I mean, just you know, and I, and and I have to admit, like I said, I, I eventually got into the to the film. But I mean, I think the, at its worst, many of the worst moments were very contrived and felt, you know, kind of, you know, written and, and part of a sort of a screenplay, you know, class, for yeah. lack of a better word, than, than anything. And, um, I, I, you know, to me... Well, and it was a rookie writer for the most part, too, at least for feature film-wise. Right, Alan Ball, Alan Ball only yeah. Only done TV. Well, the thing is, like, you're right, Javen, like, the, that's there. But at the same time, like, you have this writer that wants to deal with all these subject matters and he's just trying to figure out a way to get them all in so he's like okay so you know to deal with um the like sort of the anti-gay aspect of it let's have ricky's dad just be military and just be like so but then he deal you know he's obviously dealing with some inner demons when it comes to that sort of thing uh you know, so that's like, oh, I got to deal with that subject. So let's, I'm going to put this character in there to do it. It's almost like the pieces came together for the more thematic ideas rather than for the story. I, I want to come back to the Chris Cooper character because I think there's a lot to discuss there. But I, I did write down, Chapin, that there's a, a, there's a lot of major plot points in this movie that have too much exposition, which is kind of exactly what you're describing. And and Jeremy, Chris Cooper is the perfect example. His first line of the movie is this country's going straight to hell. Yeah. I'm like, okay, we know everything we need to know about this guy now. And there's a lot of that throughout, but you know, maybe this is something else we want to come back to, but I just think the acting in this movie is so 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 good, especially from your your leads and a few supporting actors. I think it, all of this stuff is overcome. Really? Spacey, Benning, Cooper, Peter I don't Gallagher. I think Cooper's that great. I think he's uh, I, he's I think, I think he's, he's very ex- good. 
But Spacey I, and Benning are so good in this movie that I think I, so I much is overcome. I especially liked uh, Benning this time around. I think yeah, she had her, a lot her, of layers. Her character is so... I mean, she just seems to scream and hit herself. Did you not like her? I, I like her. I think she's a great actress. I don't think her character was very well, well-rounded. So this was a that. note I made is that she... She, she has to play this really overly dramatic character, but she somehow does that without an overly dramatic performance. And I don't know how to make more sense of it than that, but that's that's what I took away from her. I was like, I, the one scene that maybe I didn't buy into was her crying at the house after she couldn't sell it. But there's so many other scenes where she's just off the wall, and I just think that's her character, but she's yeah. she is acting she is doing that exactly the way she should be and why couldn't she sell that house the market was amazing back then yeah right they should have just sold it would have been gone (laughs) yeah and yeah john john cho could have gotten a loan yeah yeah exactly i I noticed that too that's funny also Uh, i didn't know alice and janney was in this movie until this time yeah what was there's another example of like what's going on there what was i don't think they feel like they knew what they were doing there yeah yeah like what, what was what was her thing I guess none of us know. We're all just asking each other the same. She's question. just she's just quiet. Yeah. yeah. Well, clearly she's been abused or like she's been through enough or something. But yeah. it's like, what? What? It, as a screenwriter, what are you getting at there? What are you trying to portray? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think most of my issues with the with the um, convenience of the screenplay revolves around Ricky Fitz. I mean, the, the char- original hipster. The character, uh, the character names are great, right? Like for some, I never remember character names, and I remember all yeah. of them in this movie for some reason. But um, and I don't mind his character. I don't mind his performance. But like, just everything, like he's such a linchpin for all the convenient plot things, right? Like, and he also, yeah. it, it doesn't it seem like he's t- different characters. Like, oh, totally. He's he's like this person to Lester Burnham, and he's a complete like weird like honestly like he's he's really weird like in a in a frightening way i mean just the fact that you film everybody (laughs) naked like that and then he's like cool with burnham when when it comes to the weed and then he's all of a sudden a great boyfriend right right right. the filming piece which is you know kind of one of your more uh recognizable and memorable pieces seemed so irrelevant this time around to me like and what, I think that has something the, to do with the technology, to be honest. Like, back then, you film something, and, like, where do you put You You hook it with a wire to your, your yeah, own TV true. and show yeah. it, and now cool. we... Cool, story, cool job. Nice job, Ricky. Like, now I know Chapin didn't drink the other day because he was he, he was sick, it, because cause, cause I was Katie about to make fun of him. It wasn't even yeah. him, yeah. Yeah. Because somebody else posted something. Uh. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um on the Chris Cooper character, so uh, Jeremy, you um, you posted a uh, screenshot of of the scene when he comes to see yeah. Kevin Spacey out of the rain and kisses him, and <laughs> I I got the impression that that then that was your favorite scene of the movie. Um, I had watched it over. No, I got the impression again. that, and just by what you said, that you took away that Chris Cooper is gay. I t- no, I didn't. I, I think I took away that he was representing this homophobic repression like a physical representation of that see i yeah i think this was a really interesting piece of the movie because i and i and i sort of 
you know, cringe to say this, but I oddly think that there's like a lesson maybe here with his character that he believes I, I the end aside because it's very extreme, but he believes like he's doing the right thing with his son and like trying to interfere with his son's life. And I think that was, you know, him kissing Spacey was like him trying to get confirmation on what he believed was going on because, you know, he needed to confirm it so that he could resolve it or fix it. And I think that kind of inner turmoil that he has was really interesting and only sort of started to be explored towards the end of the movie, which was too bad. Um, And the reason I say I think there's a lesson there and that that's kind of cringeworthy to say is that there are a lot of people like that that believe that they are doing the right thing and these you know homophobic people or you know how whoever you want to point your finger at you know i deep down believe that what they believe is right and you know yeah i guess we can criticize them for that because you know perhaps we feel that certain things are are black and white but this movie suggests that maybe they're not yeah, and I guess, and like I say, I think it's a screenwriting tool, and I think like looking looking back on it a little bit, just like Chapin had brought up, it it feels a bit. It's not bad. It's not done bad. It just feels a bit like screenwriting class. Can yeah. I ask you guys something? If you, like one thing that struck me about the film right off the bat was the uh, voiceover, and there's not it's there's not voiceover throughout. It's not like Goodfellas, but. It got me wondering, what would you guys think if that voiceover was absent? I mean, I think there's a there's a there's a clear intention there to to sort of use the convention of this 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 person is telling you that he's going to die in a year and he knows he's going to be dead. So it's already unconventional. It's not necessarily a conventional voiceover. Yeah, but also it's it's right back to that. That's, you know, screenwriting 101 paying homage to Sunset Boulevard. Like it is it, though? I, don't I know definitely it think it is. It's the same exact idea of you you have somebody that tells you that, you know, they're going to die or you see somebody dead and they're going to tell you how it happened. Yeah, the the voiceover wasn't particularly memorable to me in this. I think it could have lived without it. I mean, to me like you 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 get so much information in that first couple minutes with the voiceover where, you know, he points out uh, you know, all you need to know about my wife is she's someone who matches her you know that, that it's not an accident that the uh, you know the 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 handles of her rose shears matches her you know gardening gloves or what whatever that line is and yeah I mean I don't know I I wish I feel like this movie would have been more I feel like it was this was like the end of the '90s right and it wasn't the beginning of the realism of the 2000s yet but it would have I felt been a little more um, I don't know a little better if it wasn't quite as again like telling instead of showing it's not it's I, not i agree it's not like, you, you know what i mean it's not it's not showing us these things it's tell it's telling us that this family is in crisis and a lot of the visuals on screen are sort of uh and antithesis to that are are ant you know they are the opposite like you see this beautiful home and you know in in fact they don't even look like they're strapped for cash which becomes an issue at some point like that they you know, they live in this beautiful neighborhood with these. Well, I think they're up to their eyeballs in debt. Probably, they're probably, oh, they probably overstretch themselves financially. Sure, I to mean, get, to be there to to represent themselves as those people. 
Yeah, uh, that might be true. I, 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 but I don't know that we're supposed to assume that. I'm not sure. Oh, I, I, think just assume, I think you're. I think you're absolutely tenu- right about the about the voiceover chafing because the, even the scene you mentioned when she's out in the garden, like they cover that in like this little throwaway scene that I think is 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 brilliant when she's talking to Scott Bakula about how she gets her roses to look that way, and it's just this like typical suburban conversation that I think is is so like clever and funny and then seeing kevin spacey jerk off in the shower like we get the point right there with that yeah and then and then later in the movie it's the opening dinner scene that you know very slowly pushes in with the perfect framing like we get the point there about like you know the the very um you know specifically placed setup of their house and like everything is just so like we get the point through the visuals in that scene, which has done well. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. You know, I hadn't really thought about it, but the voiceover kind of tells you a lot of the stuff you're already looking at. And, I mean, that, that like, that very, you mentioned a little bit, Lee, that very, um, very sort of strict kind of angular um, symmetrical framing, I just think is a little tired. Um, and it, oh, I, I mean, liked it. Well, <coughs> excuse me. Um I mean, I, I didn't mind it, but and, and there are things I did like about the cinematography. I did like those little kind of the way um, Conrad Hall uses those little like I don't know. They look like little shafts of light to highlight like just the faces of people. I thought was very beautiful and kind of set the tone nicely. I just I really hated the symmetrical framing. Everything was so specific and very kind of. But you got why they did that to I, to to show. Yeah, I get like the idea that, yeah. I'm, but it was very obvious. Like this, the the, the sort of uh, you know the, I don't know. I know what you mean the the conformity of of I, suburbia. I, I liked a lot about how this movie looked. Like, you know, you have sort of the the very picturesque interiors of the house, but the overhead shot of the neighborhood that they do a couple times, which you'd think would be like this nice, like green trees, green lawns is actually pretty dull. And I think that was intentional that like, you know, this is just sort of anywhere. This isn't a beautiful place. And they, they highlight that even a little more with the license plates, not showing any particular place. Like this is just, this isn't like perfect suburbia that we're, that we're portraying. This is just, a neighborhood this is could be anywhere and like these people are trying so hard to make it look like it's this beautiful place and this perfect setting right but it's not and i think that was done really well with the visuals i liked it a lot and i think that the that very strict framing and that was essential to that because it's trying to capture everything right perfectly in its place nothing off 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 tilt or anything like that yeah i think uh, I think it's interesting that he said it was so obvious, Chapin, which I think it is, but I think this movie does so obvious in a very kind of brilliant way. Like every, even when we're talking about like the the screenplay kind of being so obvious and the visuals being so obvious and all that, it's not, it's not done so poorly that it's distracting, but it's kind of done like film school 101 for the layman that wants to watch this. And it it totally, I I feel like just anyone who's watching this movie, especially back then, and I think that goes to my point earlier about, you know, being 18, 19 years old in, in college and people just stopping what they're doing to watch this film is because it's sort of... It, it hits it on the head, but it also do, it, it doesn't make it distracting, which right. is really tough to do. And I think... You don't think it, it's distracting. 
No, well, it may be distracting for somebody who knows what they're looking for, but I think for the layman, it's not distracting, and it's kind of it does add this extra layer of intrigue, which I think help make it such a success for both the general uh, public and for critics. Yeah, this this one best cinematography. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, I'm looking real quick, just you know, kind of for the fun of it to see what the other nominees for best picture were this year in 99 American beauty one, of course, um, you know, I, I think we would all agree on what should have won among the five, but <laughs> it's not a great no, slate. Not a great the green, year. the green Com- mile. I mean, it well, was, it was a, great a great year. year. 99 was an amazing the, year, but the best it was picture one of the nominee, greatest years in cinema history. Wait, the best wait, picture nominees are American beauty. That? Well, because I mean, Magnolia came out that year. Uh, American Club, Beauty came Matrix. out that year. Three Kings came out that year. What, Fight Club came out that year. What was the last time you guys watched Magnolia? Uh, like well, a week ago. PTA <laughs> retrospective. Yeah. Um, get into that. Um, so, um, best picture nominees were American Beauty, The Green Mile, The Sixth Sense, Cider House Rules, Sixth Sense and The came Insider. Out the Insider was great. Yeah, that that year was really good. That was one of the best years easily in cinema history. I agree. 1999. Um, can we talk... I mean, it, it sounds like we're winding down here, but I'd like to talk a little bit about what you guys thought about the ending. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I... I don't know. I, I feel like I didn't like it, and, and I just feel like it was too much... It was out uh, of place for me. It was too much of a reach, and I also didn't like the... Wait, the murder? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I also didn't like the mystery of who <laughs> did it piece. Like, I didn't like that they'd spend this whole movie, like, trying to dabble in, okay, could it have been Ricky Fitz right. doing it for Jane? Could it have been And they uh, just his clearly wife? show who it is. Yeah, and then is it Chris Cooper? Like, I didn't like that piece, and then they try to do this bit at the end where they cut to everybody's reaction to it, like seemed like a different movie to me and i don't know how else to end the movie here this is one of those instances where like what else should they have done because there's otherwise there's no resolution i guess this this is why i brought up the narration in the beginning like the whole the whole point of that opening narration is that they have to get this convention they have to kill yeah of of the killing and so you're wondering about it the whole time but I wasn't though. That that was I, wasn't, I, I never. I wasn't either. I wasn't yeah, actually I too concerned. With I that never at all, thought but. about it until you're like until the point where he gets he gets shot. And I do. I agree. I think it. <clears throat> excuse me. It's totally out of place for this movie, for for him to get murdered over whatever, whatever it ended up being. Um, Getting a blowjob from uh, Ricky Fitz. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't even. I, I kind of took it as the kiss. He's like, yeah, I oh, thought it was the rejection that the rejection of the kiss. Uh, but still, it seemed uh, either way. It's it's it seemed kind of out of place for what uh, the buildup of this movie is. Now that would be a great like if we had time time to think about it a little bit. Um, rewriting the end of American Beauty would be would be yeah. an interesting um, task. Yeah. This movie is funny too, don't you think? Yes. It has its moments. I think yeah. it's funny. Like I just some of the one-liners like especially from Spacey, like his 
the 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 two that come to mind is is you like mussels. <laughs> like, I want to start saying that to people. Yeah. And then the other one he does to any friend of Janie is a friend of mine line too. Yeah, is is so funny. And then like I just think there's these little throwaway lines where where Annette Benning's talking about uh, how how could you accuse me of cutting how could you call it their sycamore tree the majority of it was on our property I just think there's little bits like that that are so funny in this movie and maybe it's the performances that that do it but credit credit due there yeah I just uh... (laughs) you just didn't like it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I liked that. I was surprised how much I liked that. I was just annoyed. I was annoyed by it. I get that. I, I totally that. get yeah, that. Totally. Yeah, it, it is. It's kind of annoying. And uh, you also get well, what the intrigue about it was at the time. And still, the fact that we're not just uh, ripping it right now is kind of surprising to me because I kind of, I went into it thinking, oh, man, if any movie's not going to hold up, it's going to be American Beauty. But... Um, I think it fared better than I thought it would after 20 years. Now I'm sort of tasked with like what movie replaces that as the go-to example for a movie that doesn't hold up because I don't think it applies as the as the example anymore. Does it feel different to be up there without a rope? It's obviously like much higher consequence. People who know a little bit about climbing, they're like, oh, he's totally safe. And then people who really know exactly what he's doing are freaked out. I've thought about El Cap like for years, and every year I'm like, that's really scary. I'll never be content unless I at least put in the effort. El Cap is the most impressive wall on Earth. It's 3,200 feet of sheer granite. It's the center of the rock climbing universe. Obviously, I get interview questions about it all the time. Oh, would you like to do that? And you're like, yes, for sure. So you're a girlfriend now, I heard. It's awesome. <laughs> Pretty much makes life better in every way. It's really hard for me to grasp why he wants this. But if he doesn't do this stuff, he'd regret it. Everybody who has made free soloing a big part of their life is dead now. I haven't been injured in like seven years. I suddenly start getting injured all the time. What if something happens? What if I don't see him again? I could just walk away, but it's like, I don't want to. I've always been conflicted about shooting a film about free soloing just because it's so dangerous. It's hard to not imagine your friend falling through the frame to his death. I think when he's free soloing, that's when he feels the most alive, most everything. How can you even think about taking it away from somebody? No mistakes tomorrow. Starting to get kind of psyched. If you're pushing the edge, eventually you find the edge. I can't believe you guys are actually going to watch. Hey, Jimmy, do you copy? The two things I, the two reasons I wanted to bring this up is the the main one is that, you know, having now seen it post Fixies, I would like to reveal that I think it would have been a nominee for me for best picture. Um, Really? I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was excellent. And the biggest takeaway for me and the thing that I was so glad that they did with this movie and what I think 
allowed me to like it as much as I did is that they involve the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because there's so many documentaries that are these, you know, you know, fly on the wall type stories. And you sit there and you wonder, like, what are these filmmakers doing? And they you've read a lot of stuff about them acknowledging like, oh, if he falls, he dies. So you knew that was there. But, you know, these guys you learn through the well, movie. The, are sta- his... the stakes are so clear in this that you right. ha- almost have to. But it also begs the question you're about to ask, which is with every documentary, how does it influence it? Right. And they discuss that. And um, Alex even points out, he's like, I don't want to do this while people are watching. Like that's that, you know, that's not fair to them because he knows that he could fall and you know these guys filming are his friends and i think that acknowledgement of them was important and the movie you know a lot of documentaries don't do this i i thought of the documentary bully you know that was very big and controversial when that came out and you know it's got all this footage of all these people getting bullied and people bringing guns to school and the ramifications and I'm like, what are these, like, when do the filmmakers step in? Like, they're just, they're filming this happening. And that was a distraction for me during that movie. But here you you see them. They talk to them. They interview them. They, they You see their feelings. You see one of them look away when Alex gets to that pivotal point on the climb. And I just think that was important. And it made the, the human element of this movie work so much better. But you also saw them, their struggle with the fact that if they are there, like he, there was that conversation where he's like, I may not just, I may not tell you and I may just go and do it. Right. So they're planning on, okay, how do we capture this? And they're like, well, then there goes my, there goes the whole documentary, but they don't want to say that out loud because you're you're not, you don't want to be a dick and be like, well, I need to be there in case, you know, you fall. Right. And I need to get that on. Yeah. You know, we got to get that. (laughs) We got to get that's the money shot. (laughs) 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 Uh, So, yeah, no, it's a great point because it does, it does open that relationship between um, subject and filmmaker. you know, it, it brings it to the front of the, the story. And in every f- documentary film, what, I mean, this one, it was obviously about something closer to that, but every one, you have to wonder how the filmmaker influences the subject that's there. I also liked that, and I, I, I know this could be argued, and I, perhaps I could even be convinced, that I, I liked that I, I just didn't feel like Alex was one of these just adrenaline junkies that doesn't care about the people around him that is going to do this, that needs to do this. Like, I, I just, I don't know. I, he felt a little more human and he felt, I felt like his relationships were genuine. You know, you could make the argument that like he, I mean, he even says like he tells girls that this is what he does. So he understands if nobody wants to stick with him. but it seems like he has a good relationship with his girlfriend. Like, really? I didn't find that relationship too. Really? Great. Yeah, I felt like he was kind of a dick to her, but I understood why. But See, I don't think was he was so a dick. Annoying. I just feel like he was honest, and she kind of accepted that and didn't like it, but like didn't want the resentment. And I don't know. Yeah, I, just, I mean, it was I liked honest him as a character. The, I, yeah. I, 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 I kind of thought he was a dick. He was, he, he was a dick, but he was interesting. I think that might be what you're responding to, Lee. Maybe. Is it, and he and he's kind of magnetic and. You're drawn to him and you understand that. And what I what I liked about him was that you you 
understood or that you, or you believed at least that that th- this wasn't like an adrenaline seeking activity an adventure it was it was like a very precise you know practiced um you know endeavor like he it was something that he you know had had memorized like that's that's what you don't really realize is that for three and a half hours each one of these moves is a very specific memorized written down yeah um um you know path and right. i think that 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 was which almost seems like cheating in a weird way yeah <laughs> Well, right. I mean, because you like you 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 think of rock climbing or you think of, you know you're as like what's like, okay oh, what do I do next yeah like yeah like oh I'm gonna explore it and get up the but I guess obviously when your life's on the line you want to know what your next move is ahead of time yeah I mean and also when you you have to I think you can you have that liberty of exploring when you're on ropes but not when you right. but not when you don't have any ropes and so uh, I thought that that was fascinating the the photography we should say is breathtaking and, and also it's just great, yeah. it, it makes you feel like oh what if he falls i just don't know how they get some like so when he did do the climb you almost got the impression that they were got, no, like, so, kind of filming him without him knowing where they were but then there's a shot like two inches from him no yeah so basically when he did the climb this is the part that kind of annoyed me a little bit they had that whole discussion about i can't you can't be there you can't right. be cl- like what if we do something and then they're like yeah it, that would be a problem but then they don't have the discussion about how they um remedy that situation and when he actually does the climb they just set up cameras and then they film well, them from far and he away. knows they're there no he knows that he waves at him once <laughs> no no that's a can that's a camera that's by itself there's no human attached to that camera oh so they just have yeah. stuff set up yeah, they just they left cameras everywhere. But they they were uh, shooting. They were sh- they were guys shooting him. Yeah, they but they were down from below or up top. No, there was nobody on ropes or anything like that. I think there was actually. No, there was. I they they did a zoom out and you saw that camera that he waved to that's just literally on a tripod there. No, I know that one. That one definitely was. But I think that there are times there are definitely times when people are filming it and they're just trying to stay out of his eye, eye, eye line. Possibly. But I know they made a conscious effort to try to get the humans away. Yeah. When he actually did the climb. All right. So for our top five today, um, I guess we came up with this idea because of the issues, the severe issues that Kevin Spacey has found himself in uh, as of late. And it's obviously a problem for movies like American Beauty, which you can't fault Kevin Spacey's acting for Kevin Spacey's life choices, but maybe, you know, in an alternate universe, um, the filmmakers would like to recast that movie. And one did. And, well, when they could, right? Ridley Scott did. Ridley Scott recast, uh, reshot everything with um, Kevin Spacey and uh, All the Money in the World. Right, because it hadn't with been released. With Christopher Plummer. Well, yeah. But yeah, that's what, what I was saying. The movie was done, this, <laughs> Right. Yeah, people, had so, seen, they'd screened it, didn't they? And they screened it at that point, like, at a film festival? They might. I mean, it was, like, done. Like, that... <laughs> so, it, it was a crazy uh, endeavor. So, it got us, got us thinking about movies we'd like to recast, and not because the people necessarily in them were uh, horrible human beings, but maybe just because they were uh, horrible actors, which is their job. So, get it right. Um so, did you guys have any criteria for this? No, it was pretty I didn't, open I didn't even know that was part of the criteria. <laughs> Which was? That, yeah, that, I didn't that, really. That they had to be horrible. 
They didn't. didn't have to be. I did all sorts of be. reasons. I actually have sort of yeah. a mix-up of reasons why they'd be recast. Most of mine are because I just would love to have seen another actor in there because the one that they cast wasn't very good. But I also... <laughs> so, <clears throat> for my criteria, I uh, also put in who I would replace them. Oh, yeah, with. I did too. Yep. Yeah. That was the fun part. Right, who you'd recast them as. Yep. Chapin, you have any? <laughs> Did you have a list? <laughs> uh, I have, I have five people on my list. Yeah. Okay. Well, it is a top five. That's good. <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, Lee, why don't you start? Okay. Um, I have no. I didn't really know how to rank this, so I don't really have any like specific order um, here. So I'm just gonna kind of go through it. Um, and I, it is a memorialist, and I, I'm going to tell you just because I'm curious what – I want you guys to think about this, so I apologize if I'm ruining anything. But it's my, my Casey Affleck for Ben Affleck in everything memorialist. Oh, okay. And if you go through and look at Ben Affleck's roles and think about Casey Affleck in every single one of them, it's actually kind of <laughs> amazing how well it seems like it would work. Yeah, that's good. That's um, great. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and change a couple of mine. <laughs> So my number five, um, this uh, this actor, this performance in the movie, it's the only thing I remember about this movie, and I actually think this is the same for a lot of people and probably the problem with it. Um, it's Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, that's an honorable mention yeah, for so, me. So super But my racist. problem was uh, recasting it. Okay, you, so yeah. You guys are going to laugh when I tell you who I thought about. Okay, so I, I, I might not be fixing the problem here because I'm like, okay, yeah. so like the 60s or when was this? Movie? Yeah. 1960. Yeah, like, who was an somebody Asian that, that yelled a lot? Yeah. And I'm casting Toshiro Mifune. Oh my God, that's who mine is too. <laughs> Oh my god! Even though he probably doesn't even no, speak English. No, and I'm like, this is probably not solving the problem yeah. here that Mickey that Rooney I created. I like, left that off the list because I'm like, that's probably racist. No, I'm going for it. So Tashira Mifune at the top of the stairs yelling down is is what I'm going with here. Chapin, how how would he sound? <laughs> and look, that that might just be because I don't couldn't think of another actor other than him to yeah. play that role. But it's less racist than Mickey Rooney taping his eyes and putting teeth in and like doing this horrible accent. So, oh yeah, for sure. I'm a little, I, I'm a little better. And I was just gonna he'd say have a samurai sword, so he'd be. Well, yeah, of funny. course. <laughs> I was just gonna say uh, replace Mickey Rooney with any Asian actor. Any Asian actor, yeah, would be better at the time. But I had to better. pick one, so I went with yeah. the only one from that time period that I knew his name. <laughs> Okay, that's true. It's true. I, I had to look up when Bruce Lee was around, and it wouldn't. It probably wouldn't have fit exactly. That might not have been a whole lot better either. <laughs> no, you're right. But at least Bruce Lee could speak English. Yeah, that's true. All right. So now that, that one's now out that of the way, it's not going to get it. Yeah, it's not going to get any worse than that. Uh, Chapin, what's your number five? Um, so I decided to start with the source, and I wanted to recast Lester Burnham. Oh, um, great. And I went with um, Fat Nicolas Cage from Adaptation. I thought would be a good, a good lesson. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It was hard. That, it was it was hard because um, I, I thought I did do a Kevin Spacey role as well, um, but it was hard doing Lester Burnham because, I don't know, like because he's, I guess, so good in it, but he is sort of this like flubby character. You know, it's hard to p- picture somebody doing that. Yeah. Yeah, no. It's a good pick. But it was sort Nick of Cage peak Nicolas Cage around that time, like right between his two yeah, that's great true. roles. 
All right. So my number five is, um, granted, I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but it's uh, Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He just doesn't, he just doesn't fit that role. Um, And obviously I I recast him with Russell Crowe. Oh, because <laughs> who also played Robin Hood in a terrible movie. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Back that was closer to Gladiator, so it would work. But it doesn't matter to you that he'd be too young for the role. Uh, he was slightly younger. He was. I looked it up. He was like doing romper stomper around that time. Ah. So uh, he he would have been slightly slightly younger, but not like so young. It would have been weird. It wouldn't have been like eleven. Yeah. <laughs> Like how, like how you do Robin Hood, so you're like, who would be a good Robin Hood? <laughs> Errol Flynn's not around, so... Not, who else played well, Robin Well, I was thinking, I was be thinking Karen Edgerton or Russell Crowe. <laughs> no, I was just... I, I wanted Russell Crowe to play another role like Gladiator, and that would have been right around a little bit earlier, but yeah. So that's my number five. Okay. Um, since... Uh, like I said, my my ordering of these is sort of inconsequential. I'm going to move this one to next since, Chapin, you mentioned Kevin Spacey. This is my choice to recast Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects. You know, obviously a brilliant performance, <clears throat> but needs to be recast. And this was tough, but I'm going with Steve Buscemi. Wow. I don't know if he... Hmm. So I don't know if... What I tried to think about was like the, the weakness of verbal. Because mm-hmm. the toughness you only see a little bit at the end. And a good actor can pull that off. But, like, I'm trying to think of someone slouched down in their chair, not knowing how to answer the questions. Mm-hmm. And just, I was like, who who encapsulates that for me? And I'm like, Steve Buscemi, Donnie. <laughs> yep. And Big Lebowski getting yelled that, at. Like, I that feel turns like, into Mr. Pink. Yeah. To, exactly. Yep. Yeah. That's a great one. Okay, um, so I wanted to recast the Joker, and I guess I'll go with the Joker in um, that awful uh, Suicide Squad movie who was played by the dreaded... <laughs> of course, um, you're recasting a Jared Leto performance. Jared Leto performance, and he, who, you know who I'm going to go with? I, I, just because I just want to see this actor play him, I'm going to go with Andy Serkis. Oh, oh that's, that's great... really interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah I he, just think... He... He'd play him with a bunch of green dots all over him. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'd put we'd put the Joker in it in post, but yeah, he would yeah. mo- mo-cap it. <laughs> no, I actually think it'd be great to see him play. I thought he was a gr- he was a great kind of semi-villain in Black Panther and um Yeah, he was. And he was I, great. I think it'd be great to give him a starring role as a as a big villain, big baddie. Yeah, he's he's been very good in the movies he pops up in as himself. Yeah. And I don't. He doesn't get credit for it because nobody knows who he is. You know what I mean? Like everybody just knows him from his motion capture performances. But he's he's been very good. I even liked him as himself in that uh, Peter Jackson King Kong movie. Yeah. All right. So my number four is a performance I've always disliked uh, in a movie that I'm not crazy about, but. Um, it's Michelle Pfeiffer in Scarface. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. I don't like her. That's a good pick. I, she just feels out of place in that movie. She's not very but good would, in it either. And she just feels out of place. She's not very good. Uh, she just doesn't hit any of the notes. But I was like, this was the hardest to recast because I was like, I, it had to have been like, you know, it had to have been like a American 
hot blonde woman. Like that's the whole idea, like of from like, the eighties, yeah, yeah, from the early eighties. That that's what Tony was looking for in that. Like that was his ideal. There was a reason they cast her as that. Right. Um, so I went, and I don't know if she'd be much better, but I went with uh, Rebecca De, De Mornay, who was most famously at at that time in Risky Business. She oh, yeah. was a hot hot blonde in Risky Business. I mean, she would work. I don't know how good of an actress she is. You know? I don't know how much better she'd be, but right. she wouldn't be too much worse. I'd tell you that much. Well, and you know, uh, well, I guess she was popular then. Like, I almost felt like you needed somebody less recognizable than Michelle Pfeiffer. So maybe that works. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would equate they're probably about equally as popular back yeah, then. Yeah, at that point, that's true. Yeah, it's an interesting pick. I like the recasting of that, but that's definitely a tough one to pick someone um all right next up for me what are we on threes so this one was an interesting pick for me because this role has become so iconic for better or worse in this movie but i'm gonna recast marlon brando in apocalypse now ah Um, that's a great one something that perhaps coppola should have considered but you know for budget and time reasons which he i know he was very specific about with that movie Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, he couldn't do it. And, again, had to go back to find somebody that could ha- handle the the gravitas of that role. And, you know, it would ultimately be something very different. So I had that freedom. Uh, and I'm going to cast John Huston. He'd be too old. No, they were, about, they were about the same age at that time. Really? He's like, he's like 90 in Chinatown. He just always looks 90. But he was born – John Huston was born in – well, I guess he was a lot older. Nineteen. <laughs> I mean, he's, like, he's like twenty years older. <laughs> yeah, I think he'd be way too old for that. But I think no. See, I still think it would work because he just would be. He would just be older. <laughs> I, guess. I think it works. I challenge you to come up with a better one, sir. Uh, yeah, maybe not on the spot. Is it my turn? Jack Nicholson. Yeah. I thought about him, but I don't. I wouldn't have been able. I don't think he would have or i feel like he wouldn't have he would have been, been perfect for that actually i felt like he would have been too young at that time leonardo dicaprio perfect <laughs> nailed it is it my turn i think john yeah. houston would have worked uh, i don't think so Fuck. yeah wrong hate, hate, when for us. hate when my top five is wrong <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to do because it's an opinion especially <laughs> such an open-ended one yeah <laughs> um is it my turn? Yes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you guys remember Danae Guerrera? Uh, she plays the the like the the um, King Ch- T'Challa's bodyguard in Black Panther and Avengers and uh, the Avengers movie. You yeah, know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's really good, and I would love to see her play the bride in the Kill Bill. Franchise. really yeah. wow that is just that is like so two worlds yeah she's just I, got how old she's got a how very old would she have been back then she's well yeah she she's a little she's no, i think she'd be okay appropriate she's a little older than you'd think she is um and uh i think she's got a very expressive face like i i, I was even considering putting her on my best supporting actress list this year just but i knew that i'd be scoffed at if uh, uh avengers <laughs> Infinity War ended up on any acting. Well, although hey, when well, that's not true, because I uh, did. Yeah, I, I put uh, Josh um, Brolin. She's only I, eight years younger than Uma Thurman. Yeah, so she could have worked. 
I actually, so I didn't end up doing it with that, but, like, I did think about, like, trying to find roles that, like, who, like, you would look at and be like, nobody else could have done this. Like, like Uma Thurman as the bride and, like, recasting that. I didn't end up doing any of those, but I did think that that was an interesting direction to take this list to. Thank you. (laughs) You're up. That one you got right, Chapin. All right, so my... Speaking of nobody else could have done this, my number three, I'm recasting Hayden Christensen in the Star Wars movies. Oh, thank yeah. God. <laughs> I don't know. I'm so, sorry for all the fans out there. <laughs> and and I'm looking at his, uh, his IMDb right now, and he has not done anything that anyone's seen since, since those Star Wars. Oh, since Jumper in 2008. I didn't really That's mind cr- him in those movies. <laughs> Oh, um, <laughs> but anyhow, so I'm gonna recast him with Jake Gyllenhaal around that time. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that that's works. Good that's good. I think yeah. I th- I think that's probably about when he was around Donnie Darko time. So that uh, that would be and, I think and, a good. And, one. and you know they looked at him, right? I mean, they you know he they was had off, to they, have, yeah. was up for consideration. But then Lucas is like, well, no, I think I like this bad guy. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it went down. <laughs> Let's yeah, recast it was the, right, the kids. It was right uh, after uh, Donnie Darko, so it would have actually been perfect. Perfect. All right. So, Jeremy, you give a Gyllenhaal a role. I taketh one away. <laughs> we're, playing, we're playing God here. <laughs> I'm recasting both Maggie Gyllenhaal and Katie Holmes in the Batman movies. Oof. Oh, great. And this was tough because, like, the the actresses I was looking at, I had to make sure that, like, I wanted the ages to line up. So you might raise an eyebrow at my pick here, but if you put her back, you know, 10 years or so ago, it, I think it works. But we didn't see a lot of her back then. But Roseman Pike, I think, can do the toughness and the vulnerability of Rachel Dawes. That's a great well. pick. That's a really good pick. Would not have thought of her. It was hard. That was actually the hardest one for me. I've been wanting to recast those roles since those movies came out, but that was oddly the hardest one for me to pinpoint. Um, Rooney Mara was another consideration, but she doesn't work for the age. Yeah. Um, Yeah, she's too young. So, um, yeah, Roseman Pike, I think, would have handled that at least a little better than both of them. I don't know who's worse. Uh, I think Katie Holmes is. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. You hate, Katie, you hate her. You Katie hate Holmes her. is in the whole movie. You have to watch her the whole time. At least they kill off Maggie Gyllenhaal. That wasn't in the script. They had to reshoot that after test screenings. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. Chapin. All right. So um, you, thank you for recasting Anakin Skywalker. I'm going to recast... Luke Skywalker. Oh, I thought about doing this. That's a great, yeah, that's a great And uh, I had I to thought, go... Chapin, I thought you'd get mad at me. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to cast a little known actor named Sabrian of Cranston as Luke Skywalker. Does that match up age-wise? It wow. does, it does. Yeah. That'd was be... he working? What did he do back in those years? Uh, I don't know that I he, mean, was, he was in like, yeah. like I don't think he was a working actor. Yeah, because he didn't then. show up until like he was in Seinfeld a little bit. Okay, like well, neither 90s. did Luke Skywalker. So, well, no, no we're not, not saying I'm it's not right. <laughs> I was curious. I was, yeah, uh, if he had done anything. Um, he had a he. You would have discovered him, Chip. In 1968, yeah. he had a spot in One Life to Live. There we go. 
They, and, he, and Lucas saw him there, and it had to happen. Yeah, and then, uh, nine years and later. And what did he sound like? What did he sound like when he cast him? Yeah. Lu- Lucas? We'll take what? you, Walter White. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Where did you come up with Cranston here, though? I just looked up actors of a sing- singular, a similar age, and I, I, you know, I couldn't find anybody who sort of fit the vulnerability of him. But you know, Walter White kind of has that characteristic early on, even though I yeah. think that that uh, that entire uh, that whole series is incredibly overrated. But um, he's good. Feedback at, at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. <laughs> I never finished it. I've only signed like, two and a half seasons or something. But I um. I thought about recasting Luke Skywalker, but I'm like, I don't know. We're trying to get listeners. Chapin's yeah. going to get mad at me. Well, I will recast um, Sybil Shepard in Taxi Driver. Really? Uh, do you not think yeah, she's good in that? I do not think she's good in that, and I just never got the... Yeah, she might not uh, be. I, I didn't get like the attraction for... Uh, Travis Bickle there like what he was what it was trying to accomplish as far as storytelling I think our character is kind of dull and I can see your our, your your issue with that like what's he attracted to here but I don't yeah. think I ever had an issue with her performance I don't know but maybe she's not very good it's an interesting uh, and I went with Catherine Ross as the uh, recast most famously from The Graduate and Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid she she I think she's like eight years older than Sybil Shepard at the time, but um, I think she still would have worked. And she would have had, a, I, I guess she would have just had a little bit more gravitas for that role um, and felt more in that world than Sybil Shepard did. And I think that was my issue with oh, her. See, she I don't think never... she would have had the more in the world piece. Like, she's a little too, you know, uh, free spirited to be, a you know, this hardened New Yorker character that taxi driver show showcases well i didn't well i guess that was my issue with sybil shepherd is she never felt that way either so yeah maybe um anyhow so that's what i went with interesting didn't think we'd see All a right. taxi driver recasting you may see another one really Ooh, interesting all right so uh, we're down we're on already number ones right or yes. whatever we're calling them yeah so i don't know number ones. i don't know that this is deserving of a number one spot but like i said i um didn't really rank these specifically but uh this is going to come from a uh fixie nominated movie from just last year i am recasting topher grace in the role of david duke and soon, once I thought of the actor to do it, I feel like there was there. I don't know why he, they didn't cast him, um, and maybe that makes it boring. But Sam Rockwell, oh yeah, would have been yeah, amazing course. in that role. Uh, you could recast anyone for Sam Rockwell. Yeah, Doesn't but I mean, like that he, man or woman. Yeah, <laughs> I just think he's perfect for that character. I don't, you know, at Topher Grace looks like David Duke did when they were he. David Duke was younger, and I hate when that's the main reason you cast somebody and I don't know that I have any real issues with Topher Grace but he wasn't very good in the Black Clansman. He was fine. He was fine for but me. I didn't have as much problem with him. I think that, Rockwell would have delivered a, a fixie nominated performance in that role. He always does that guy. Yep. Okay. Um, I, you know, didn't really know the criteria for this early on so I recast the role of Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver and, uh-huh. and now that I think of it this might not be 
And this might not be worse, actually. But I went ahead and cast uh, Sir Dennis Hoffman as oh. as Travis Dennis Bickle. No, yeah, yeah. Dennis Hoffman. That's oh. not a person. Hoff- yeah, that's not a person. Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, my, head is, I, my head is not in with me today. Dustin Hoffman. Uh, I thought you were going to say Dennis Hopper, and I'm like, that's a, that's a good pick. Yeah, that would have no, worked, no, no. too. No, Dustin yeah. Hoffman works. Dustin Hoffman, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're wrong. Dustin Hoffman is the answer. Yeah. I think that also works. That's a little bit more interesting. I like how how um, the graduate co-stars have both gotten new, gotten some more work on this top five. They deserve it. And Taxi Driver has a whole new cast, coincidentally. <laughs> yes. Wouldn't have been a bad movie. Yeah. Taxi Driver starring Dennis Hoffman <laughs> and <laughs> Catherine Ross. Jesus, what's wrong with me? <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. All right, so my number one is a role I, I think we all agree needed some recasting. And it was uh, Cameron Diaz oh, in Gangs of New York. Oh, yeah. I, it was my number I, six, but I was hoping one of you guys would have it. Well, I, you can tell me who you were cast with, but I went with uh, Rachel Weiss. Oh, yeah. that's I like that. I went with Kate Winslet. Again? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Leo and Kate Winslet together. I see. I actually left <laughs> it off my list because I wasn't thrilled with my Kate Winslet pick. I was like, that's sort yeah. of easy. Although I do right. think she would have been good in that role. But Rachel Weiss, great. Fixie winner. Fixie winner, Rachel Vice. That's a great pick. Yeah, that's talk about that might be the one on this list that needed to be recast more than anything. Well, no going back in time Aside now. Aside from Maggie Gyllenhaal and Mickey Rooney. Well, actually, probably the Mickey. Yeah, well, exactly. And Dennis Hoffman. He's so good. I love Dennis Hoffman. You guys are you guys are jerks. Uh, and on that note that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast Um, please email us Uh, we got some more top fives to go through from emailers but uh, we will I promise we'll get to your email at uh, feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com um, and please, you know rate us on iTunes and we're on Spotify it's a company so we're there And, um, yeah, thanks for listening. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.